Thank you very much for coming out on a Saturday. Really appreciate it. I know people have come from a long way. My name is John, and I come from a church in London, and I brought a number of people that we're trying to sell to other churches. And so if you think you can take any of these people off my hands, it'd be really great. They're the major pastoral problems of the church. Now, just in case any of you are thinking I look a bit odd, I do look a bit odd. Um, I've got something called oral allergy syndrome, and it kicked off about three in the morning, and it means that part of my face is swollen. And it'll probably, it will go down during the day, and I've taken enough antihistamine to uh, tranquilize a horse. So um, who knows what I'm actually going to say. Um, but um, I apologize for my appearance. It's not, this, is only, this is like half duck. Full duck is like one lip. Total duck is two lips. I can look like a cartoon character. It doesn't hurt, but it is a bit embarrassing. Anyway, for those of you who wouldn't even have noticed that, um, there you go. Um, mm. So two sessions this morning, uh, probably quite familiar uh, about the ministry of Jesus and how we can engage in the ministry of Jesus. And then in the afternoon, some seminars, one on worship and one on hearing God's voice. I would just choose whichever one seems most interesting to you. And then this evening, I'm going to speak about Pentecost. And you know what? Just in case you're local, it's probably quite good for people that don't believe or don't really go to church that much or hover around the edges. Just in case you're in touch with them or even young people like the youth group, I'm quite good with them. Just think about it. So, uh, last year, around May, uh, I was in California visiting a couple of churches that we have a relationship with, and um, I was about to speak, and I noticed that the woman standing next to me had a brilliant voice, and I, I do love a good voice, and conversely, don't like a bad one. <laughs> do like a good voice, and basically, said to her, you know, you have, a, you have a great voice. And she burst into tears, which is not what I anticipated. Um, and she didn't know that I was about to speak. I said to her, I'm going to try and help you. And then I walked onto the stage. And I felt God say to me, tell her um, the story of this woman who's here today called Iosio. And um, everybody else can listen in. So I said to this woman who was sitting there, I'm just going to speak to you, but everybody else can listen in. And I talked about a time when I'd been walking down the stairs to go to the loo, just down that way. And as I got parallel this woman, I felt God may have been saying to me, can you, can you tell her I love your singing? And I thought, no. <laughs> Carried on to the loo, came back. Because uh, you know what it's like, you never know that it's God, do you? Complete stranger to me. I'd recognized her from the week before, that's it. Anyway, I'm agitated, and I'm looking at her, and the thought is not going away. Um, and I can see that the person standing next to us looks quite related to her. I think it's probably her daughter. So I have a chat with the daughter, and I said, you know, does your, does your mother like singing? She said, yes. I said, is she a worship leader? And she said, yes. And um, so then I thought, right, I'm going for it now. Um, 
so I walked up to her and said, do you, you know, do you think you could trust me? I'm John, I lead the church. And we should, we'd never spoken to each other, so it's a very loaded question, isn't it? I mean, the answer would have been no. But she said, she said, yes. So I took her by the hand and, and stood her in front of the church. And then I said what I felt God was saying. Uh, I said, I feel it's important that I say these things to you as a church leader in front of a church. I believe that God is saying that he loves your singing, and I see that you're a worship leader. And then God showed me she had a physical condition and that there was a debt issue. And we actually took a collection and did quite a lot to help with the debt and um, prayed for the condition, which isn't one that's really going away. And there was, there was quite a change in that. But the main thing and the most important thing is that she'd been involved in a church and things had gone wrong. And um, uh, the combined pain of, of the condition and what had happened in the church left her alone and often at her piano worshiping and crying. And so uh, the revelation that God loved her singing was very, very powerful for her. And effectively, um, you know, she's been reinstated now as a worship leader, which is one of her many considerable gifts. She's doing the seminar on worship this afternoon, sang a bit of um, prophetic song last night, is an amazingly gifted person. And it's amazing, isn't it, that it would have been so easy to miss that. Whole families added to the church, probably made a difference to the whole family's life. Easy for me not to respond to that. And I think that we all have those sorts of promptings. It's just having the confidence to seek to act on them. At the same time, I met a woman that I knew who was absolutely in the throes of profound grief. Um, her nephew took his own life and was more like a son to her. And really all the griefs of her life were pouring out and we met. And she said to me amongst other things, which is very common when people are bereaved, I feel very guilty. And I said to her, well, I can help you with that. And basically, uh, I understand because my mother died when I was 21, and my brother took his own life, my father died. I understand bereavement. But I do know that guilt is not something that people have to endure in the same way that they have to go through a bereavement process. And so I suggested that she took as long as she wanted to confess to God anything that was on her conscience, things that actually probably she wasn't even guilty of, I don't care. I said, I don't want to hear any of it. You talk to God, take your time. I'm just going to, I will be here with you. You don't need to say anything out loud. You and God, take your time, and I, I'll be here when you're finished. So <laughs> about 20 minutes later, um, I was beginning to think, has she died? Um, but no, um, it was just going on and on. Um, very silently, she'd finished. And I then, you know, had the privilege that we all have of proclaiming that her sins are forgiven. Because we know it says in the Bible that God is faithful and just. And when we confess our sins, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know that when we confess our sins, he remembers them no more. He puts them in his great big forgettery. Very important. So when you bang on and on about your sins, he really doesn't know what you're talking about because he chose to forget it the first time. Quite difficult, isn't it, that to really believe that it is what the New Testament teaches. So um, 
the next time I saw her was that Sunday. Now, she told me that she was completely disconnected from God. She couldn't feel the presence of God. She wasn't sure she believed in God. That Sunday, she actually pushed people out of the way to be the front of the church to be prayed for because things had changed that much. Now, that's just the ability to minister to someone the forgiveness of sins. That's it. Changed her life. And then after I came back to England, um, somebody came to church for the first time and they said, can I have a word with you? Took me outside and said their their, that their husband had killed himself, that, that basically her son didn't know and, and, and that she felt so guilty. And I said, I can help you with that, thinking I am on a roll. I can help you with that. And she said, yeah, well, I know I need to see a therapist. I said, no, 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 I can help you with that guilt. You don't need to take that out of this church building. She said, really? I said, yes, I promise you, I can help you with that. So basically, the worship began. I think Isaiah was actually leading the worship. It was very powerful. And this woman, who's not a Christian, starts engaging in the worship. I can see that because she has her hands in the air. And um, I went to speak to her afterwards. And I said to her, why don't you just bring to God anything that's on your conscience? It's normal to feel guilty when someone dies that we love. Why don't you end it? Why don't you just say it all and leave it? And so she did. And then we invited the spirit to come, and it was all great to start with. She was smiling and laughing, and then she started screaming at the top of her voice. Turns out she's a very demonized person, but nevertheless, that part of it was dealt with. And then at New Wine this year, um, I was doing a seminar like this, and... A woman came up to me at the end when the Lord hath decreed that it's time for coffee. And basically, I wanted one. And I had prayed for enough people, I said to God. And I do not need to pray for another one. And, quite frankly, she looks like a professional charismatic. And she looks a bit strange. And she's looking at me in quite a strange way. Which means that, you know, she's got the, you know, if, if you pray for me, it'll be okay look. Which I always find very difficult. And basically... She's there with a friend, and I graciously prayed for her, um, despite everything that a normal person would have done to walk away. And uh, she started falling forwards towards the stage. She was going to hit her head on the stage. And I thought, that does not look like the fall of somebody that's used to this at all. And so I graciously allowed her to fall to the floor and caught her, and there she was on the floor. She stayed there for a very long time. And um, the long and short of it was, she had a, a, she had a horse riding accident, did serious, serious damage to her back. She had metal implants in her back. And she couldn't stand at all without being in pain for more than three minutes. This has gone on for years. She didn't tell me any of that. And so basically, I then kept seeing her around the site. How's your back? It's absolutely fine. I'm, I'm no pain, no pain at all. It just goes on and on until she's saying, I've now got sensation in my back where the metal is. It was going on and on, and she's just absolutely fine. Now, I mean, I say what I usually say when somebody tells me they've been here, which is, are you sure? <laughs> Being a man of great faith. And, um, I mean, what, what, something amazing was going on there. I, I, I don't know the end of the story, but it was amazing. Now, the thing is, the reason I've told you these things is because they are some com comparatively recent stories of the ministry of Jesus in which I was involved, willingly or unwillingly, and I'd like you to know that God used me to minister forgiveness of sins, emotional healing, physical healing, 
the restoration of ministry and gifts and prophecy. And my ambition is that every single one of you here will be able to do these things and much more. That's what I want. And in my new wine role, and I realize quite a few of us go to new wine, I'm in charge of ministry, overseeing ministry. And I, my observation on new wine is it kind of stopped doing it. I don't know why because it wasn't broke, but somehow we decided we'd try and fix it. I reckon that's partly got to do with the speakers that come in, some of the worship leaders, but for whatever reason, basically we didn't really do it in the way we used to do it. Can I say week two, much better than week one, but still, it's low level. So two years ago, I'll just give you a snapshot of what happened to people from my church that went. Basically, my kids' work, it was kissed during a time of ministry at New Wine. My wife was nuzzled. The youngest Christian we had there was rocked from side to side in the arms of two women who prophesied different things in either ear. Thank goodness there wasn't a third one. And my youngest worship leader was kneed in the back of the leg to help him fall over. Now, that's just my people. So when I say we have departed from the model, I am not joking. But I am New Wine's mother now. And these things are not happening any longer. We are going to do what we always used to do in the way we always used to do it because it wasn't broken. That's my point. And I'd just like to make an apology to anybody who was here last night and to some people specifically. Because I speak off the top of my head, I cannot be... Um, uh, I cannot guarantee, you know, saying everything were perfectly. And I made a mistake last night. I said I, I don't like Pentecostals. What I meant to say, what I meant to say is I don't believe in, in fundamental Pentecostal doctrines. I don't believe baptism in the Spirit is a second experience, according to Paul. I don't think you have to speak in tongues to be a Christian. I don't believe in the necessity of full immersion baptism. That's all I mean. You do not have to believe those things. You can go your way and I'll go God's. It's not a problem. The thing is, um, no... The thing is, I was taught by Pentecostals. It was relevant in my mind at the time, but what should not have come out is I hate Pentecostals. I, that's not even true. So um, I apologize for that. But what I do not appreciate is messing with a model which people can, can really find accessible, easy to use, and which God is using in the interests of things that are much more Neanderthal and foolish, which quite frankly were around before Wimber and have come back in full force since. So, really, I want to take us back to where we began, um, though with my own take on it, obviously. Um, and so, what, what we are doing when we pray for people is we are being normal. Ask yourself, am I normal? Right, just ask that. Ask, do you think you could in any way explain why you're a Christian, how you want to pray for someone, what the weather's like, in a normal way that somebody outside of here could understand? Serious question. This, this book is prop, will not be interesting to everyone. With Andrew, thank you for what you said. This will be interesting to people who are evangelists and who are interested in how the gospel was actually first formulated and how it should be formulated now. My theory as a public evangelist, which is really what I am, that's really what I do. This is not really what I do. I am doing it. This, the thesis of this is that we have not translated the gospel of Jesus in a way that people can understand today. So that will only be interesting to you if you're actually interested in that kind of thing. Um, but what we need to be as people who are going to minister the love and the power of Jesus is normal. 
We need to be a normal human being meeting a normal human being in the church or outside the church. We need to be a person of love. We need to be a person of compassion. Otherwise, do not bother. We need to be a human being meeting another human being as they courageously ask you to help them. That's it. Or even if they're not asking you, courageously um, hear you as you offer to help them. Being rude, aggressive, super spiritual, and weird are banned. Okay. Strange body actions like, here I am conducting electricity. You know what I mean? I'm conducting it from up here, it's coming down my arm, and it's going to hit you over here somewhere, right? Strange, jerking, shaking movements don't help anyone. They just make people praying for you. You praying for people think you are a weirdo. So the object of the game is, as Paul says, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. You do not need to do any of that stuff. You can do it when you're getting prayed for. I don't care. Bounce around, roll around off the floor, bounce from the walls. I do not care. When you're praying for someone, can you be normal? It will help them. I do not believe that anybody can minister to people. Jesus trained his disciples for three years to do this work, and therefore we need to be trained. However, anybody who has been trained and is willing to learn and is willing to be used can be used by God, but it's not the case that we can just do it. Okay, who, who are always the people who are most powerfully used in any area of the Christian life? You can shout this out, I'm comparatively deaf. The weakest, weakest, interesting, no. (laughs) Have another go. No, they know the answer. Have another go. Not the weakest. The humblest, no, good try. Willing, Mm, close. Good, Good try, no. Listening, no. Holiest, no. Most committed, no. People who show up. That's it. It's true. What's interesting about people who've come this weekend from London is they always do. It's not surprising to me that they've grown in their gifts because they are the ones who show up. Showing up's the key. In and out of season. Anything that we're any good at in the Christian life, we're only good at because we've just kept doing it. I mean, other things help. Humility helps. Expectation helps. Faith helps. But really, God uses absolutely anything, doesn't he? He's not proud. He'll even use idiots like ourselves. So, again, one more shameless plug for this. Then we can forget about it. Uh, Although it wouldn't be obvious, what I'm doing is summarizing some of the best theologians who've written on this subject. I'm good at that, I'm not a theologian, but I'm quite good at summarizing. I did a degree in law and theology. So I've summarized. And so there's Gordon Fee, Michael Green, David Watson, John Wimber, um, uh, quite a lot of people who who, who are serious communicators and serious formulators of the theology of the spirit over the last 30, 40 years. And so what I'm doing here is talking about 
the difficulty of talking about God as spirit, which is stumbling block number one for most Christians, the spirit in the Old Testament, spirit in the New Testament, because you need to know that, kingdom of God in the Old and the New Testament, because that was close to the ministry of Jesus, his main proclamation in the New Testament. So we need to know where it comes from in its origin and how it's applied in the New. And then uh, I am looking at the meaning of Pentecost, and then I am looking at the Pauline contribution in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, what we gain from there about the work of the spirit. And then there's a lots of practical stuff from what does real worship look like to how do you pray for healing, deliverance, inner healing, blah, 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 blah. So basically, I've tried to be as practical as possible and as theological as possible, but to make it accessible to people who are not professional theologians. At the end of every chapter, there's a story. I would say three of them are actually straight miraculous. The rest of them are just quite exciting. Um, uh, from people in St. Mary's. Now, the point of that is to say nothing about the church. It's just to say that any church, and I know that this church, for example, has continually prayed for people. You will have an inheritance of these kinds of stories, and I just want to make that point. So if you want them, please go and get them. I don't want to take any home, and I will blame you if I have to. <laughs> so theology, ready? What did Jesus do? Um, here's Jesus' agenda, Luke 4, 14 to 21. Uh, Oh, yeah. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and every person praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then we see an extraordinary snapshot of what Jesus does in verses 31 to 44. I think we'll just whip through this. He went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee. On the Sabbath, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching. His words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man demonized. Okay, next. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out with it without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are? With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. The news about him spread through the whole surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue, went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over, rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up and at once began to wait on them. Great. Somebody can do the food. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of illness, laying hands on each one, one of them. He healed them. He healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people. You are the Son of God, they shouted. He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Bang, 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 bang. For three years of his ministry, Jesus did very little other than preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. He also prayed, and he explained his teaching to his disciples and prepared them to do what he did. That's it. I mean, people would like to find other things in the ministry of Jesus, but um, unfortunately, that's it. What did Jesus do before this time? A popular question amongst the non-Christian community. Well, apart from the remarkable events surrounding his birth, nothing of significance. He grew up in his parents' home and he worked as a carpenter. The action with which we are all familiar only begins after he's been baptized by John the Baptist. 
after 30 years of largely unremarkable human existence. So what happened at Jesus' baptism was obviously very important, and we're going to come back to it because it helps us answer the question, how do we do what Jesus did? So just a little detail. If you could put um, Luke 4 back up again. Luke 4, 18, the first bit. Jesus has come to preach good news to the poor. Essentially, the good news that the long-awaited Messiah had come right here, right now, to save his people and usher in the kingdom of God. And Jesus announces more of a new moment than a new message. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, right? He sets prisoners free and releases the oppressed, second part of verse 18. Those imprisoned by sinful patterns of behavior, societal and religious legalism, and by demons. And the ministry of Jesus can only be seen as a power encounter between two kingdoms. <coughs> According to the New Testament worldview, the ruling kingdom upon the earth at this time is the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus storms this kingdom, breaking down its strongholds by preaching, healing, and delivering. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that is what spiritual warfare is. It is not locking yourself in a room and interceding for days, right? I mean, that's lovely, but it's not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is preaching, healing, and casting out demons in the name of Jesus. He says in Luke eleven twenty, if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, Right? So it's about power being on us and an existing power being displaced. I spoke in a youth group once when I was training to be a vicar. It was a parish mission, which should have told my college, do not go there, but for some reason it didn't. So we went, and basically I'm speaking to the youth group, and there's a very nice um, girl um, who was hosting the event and said, says to me, do you want some tea? The next minute she was thrown across the room. So we go from, do you like some tea? Vicar, to potential vicar, to bang, across the room. No, I didn't pray for her, talk to her or anything else. She was just demonized, and there was a power encounter, which is quite shocking for us both, to be honest. And then I did, I did my little talk, and ding-dong goes the bell, just as we're about to pray for people, and about mm, seven or eight much older boys turned up. Nobody knew who they were. Nobody had invited them. They just came in as though it was the most normal thing in the world, into a kind of Christian circle. And um, then we invited the Spirit to come, and they were blasted out of their minds. That is the power of God. Can't control it. Can't or orchestrate for it. See what I'm saying? That is God's power. Jesus healed the blind literally and figuratively, 18c. And all of this was thought of as an expression of God's favor, verse 19, which is really important. A demonstration of God's settled attitude of grace, mercy, and loving kindness towards prostitutes, tax collectors, unclean, and simple people. Just tell me, why do people feel guilty when someone dies? It's one of these stages of grief. Why do people always feel guilty? They find something to feel guilty about. Do you know why? They also tend to feel guilty when they're sick. They can feel guilty when something goes wrong in life. Do you know why? It's because on any occasion when we stop, when we're made to stop, when we're made to look inside, we are going to find evidence against each other, against ourselves, sorry, because we are sinful. It's just that we live in the illusion that we're, pretty, we're quite good, actually, and some of us massively esteem-sensitive people, like Donald Trump, massively so. Somebody asked Donald after his alleged conversion, 
um, what he would feel he'd need to repent of. And he said, yeah, I can't think of anything. I, I believe him. I believe he couldn't think of anything. And some of us are quite esteem sensitive as people. In other words, it's mortifying to be wrong. So we basically live, and we're perfectionist, and basically we live desperately trying to pretend that everything's okay. It's such a hard burden to carry for people, especially Christians, because the Christian thesis is that no one's okay, but that we're accepted anyway. And this is one of the most important things to be reminded of again and again. I feel like every visiting speaker, every time they ever go, should just remind the people, you do know, don't you, that you're loved anyway. Why? Because God is love. He cannot but love you. It's his job. He loves you because he is love. It's his nature, right? So you can be as bad as you want or as good as you want, and he will still love you. I'm not saying that won't have consequences. I'm just saying his love is never switched off. He will continue to love you like an unrelenting love beast. He will always come looking for you, hunting you down to love you, if you let him. And probably... The most important thing to take away from any occasion like this is the reminder that you are deeply, dearly, unconditionally, and wonderfully loved. And the ministry of Jesus is about the triumph of that love over circumstances, the circumstance of prostitution, the circumstance of tax collecting, of defrauding people, of abusing people with power, of societal legalism, of demons, etc. It's the triumph of mercy and loving kindness over these things. And so I hope, if nothing else happens, that God will be the lifter of your head and you will see again that you are his dearly loved son, you are his dearly loved daughter, that nothing will ever change that. You're precious in his eyes, saints of the Most High God, dearly loved, rejoiced over with singing. How did Jesus do what he did? Now, here we are, a bunch of Christians. What are we trying to do? We're trying to follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, how do we do that? Now, we should know the answer, shouldn't we, really? You'd think, and I reckon some of us have been Crispies for quite a long time. So we should know the answer to the question, how did Jesus do what he did? But I'm betting from previous experience that a lot of people could not answer that question. Most Christians assume the answer is because he was the son of God, and therefore they fail to take seriously the kenosis or self-emptying that must have been inherent in the incarnation. When the son of God took flesh, he emptied himself of some aspects of divinity. For example, being everywhere at once, knowing everything, being all-powerful. Luke says in Luke 2:52 that he grew in understanding. Matthew says that he was astonished on one occasion. He asks again how many loaves on another occasion, and he asks quite most poignantly and most graphically, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even though he's quoting the psalm. I think that's a real quiet cry of separation and anguish. These are real questions asked by the Son of God. He empties himself in this way because these dimensions of divinity are incompatible with true humanity. And Jesus wants to identify with us insofar as he possibly can. These attributes belong more to what it means to be creator as opposed to created and Jesus wants to come as near as possible. He does not lay aside sinless perfection, which is proper to the original creation of humanity by God and also to his nature as God the Son. So this is good news and bad news for those people who want to follow Jesus. Jesus was the same as us in kind. He is fully human, and therefore the model of what a human being can do when he or she is perfectly dependent on the power of the Spirit and the direction of his or her father. But 
He is different in degree. Jesus is sinless and therefore more fully human than we will ever be. Whereas we shall never be perfectly obedient, perfectly filled with the Spirit because of our fallen nature. And that is why our experience of trying to do the things of God is enigmatic. It's why some people we pray for are healed and some people are not. It's why some people come to faith with all our prayer behind it, and some people do not. We will never be able to resolve the mystery involved in that. Sometimes we get glimpses of factors that could be at play, but even then, God directly contradicts them. For example, you could say that faith is important. I reckon that woman I prayed for in New Wine, she brought faith to the party. She thought, she listened to what I said, probably similar stuff, and thought, if only that man will pray for me, I'll be healed. So she bought faith, I bought the desire for a coffee, but she brought some faith. Faith was there. On the other hand, I have prayed for people who've told me they do not believe. I remember one conservative evangelical who did not believe in the power of the Spirit at work today, bouncing up and down on the floor as we were praying for his damaged back, saying, nothing is happening to me. Nothing is happening to me. I mean, talk about unbelief. Of course, it's flipping happening to him. The thing is, therefore, there are no rules is what I'm trying to say. For every system people develop, there's always a contradiction. And that is because we are not Jesus, right? So we are in the image of Jesus. We are seeking to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. We are seeking to follow Jesus, but we are not him because we are not sinless. And this is why we have an enigmatic experience. It's why Christians don't sign up for the ministry of Jesus because of the three crucial elements that have to be in play. And we do not like them, which I'm going to come to them. We count ourselves out. So let's go back to the baptism, Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Of course, John is completely right, isn't he? Right? There's, not, there's no reason why Jesus should be baptized by him. Too right, John, because John knows as well that he's sinful. And then Jesus says, yeah, let it be so for now. It's the proper thing for us to do to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. In other words, my father has told me I am doing this. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he comes out of the water. At that moment, heaven is opened, and he sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Repeated at the transfiguration, when again, the curtain concealing heaven is rolled away and we see the realities of the spiritual realm we see the love of father and son mutually expressed so three things happen when jesus is baptized that are crucial first of all jesus does the right thing secondly he is he experiences the love of his father and thirdly he's filled with the spirit without limit now those are the answer to the question, how did Jesus, incarnate in the flesh, do what he did? Because he's flawlessly obedient, he dwells in an unbroken communion of love with his Father, and he's filled without limit by the Spirit. Let's have a look at that in a little bit of detail. Jesus' favorite self-designation of Son of Man. It's an enigmatic expression from the Old Testament, but he uses it to define his role as the suffering servant. He's the obedient servant, Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
He's under the authority of his father, yet not my will but yours be done in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 39. There are many occasions when Jesus knows and does extraordinary things, like knowing there's some kind of coin in the mouth of a fish, raising Lazarus from the dead, but he never knows or does these things independently of his father. And he says, and this is very important for our model, I would say, in John 19, 30 and 32, I only do what I see my father doing. By myself, I can do nothing. I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. So the Son of God can do nothing by himself. Nothing. So what can we do by ourselves? Less than nothing I'm going for. Well, nothing good. So he doesn't possess supernatural power independently of his Father. Um, Luke mentions... Um, when, he goes to when he goes to Nazareth, the power of the Lord was present to heal. Sorry, not Nazareth. In 5 verses 17, the power of the Lord was present to heal, which means sometimes it wasn't, for example, when he went to Nazareth. And this explains Jesus' emphasis on prayer. For him, Inter intimate communion with his Father was a way of life, the way of direction, the way of obedience. His disciples noticed this about him, and they asked him to teach them to pray. When was the last time anybody asked you to teach them to pray? Because they can see how crucial prayer is to your life. It's just a question. It's not a threat. I'm just asking. Jesus lived with these two people for three years, and one of the most outstanding things about him was that he prayed. He prayed before making important decisions, like the appointment of the 12. I'm going to try to describe how I think revelation worked for Jesus. Obviously, this is just a theory. So Jesus goes up to pray all night, that God would give him wisdom to choose disciples. He comes down in the morning and he sees some fishermen and they are fishing because it's what fishermen do. And basically, uh, I believe the Holy Spirit sh says to him, these people will be fishers of men. So he then goes to some fishermen and says, you will be fishers of men, come follow me. And because he's speaking to the right people at the right time, they drop everything and they follow him. So when Jesus sees Nathaniel, he remembers a verse in the Old Testament in the book of Chronicles where it says, blessed is a man who has his own fig tree. So Nathaniel is sitting under a fig tree and he says to him, you are a genuine Israelite uh, because of this passage that he knows in the Old Testament. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, that's nothing, mate, that's Charles Blake. Come and you'll see much more than that. That's how I think revelation works, which is why it's important when we pray for people to keep our eyes open and to see what God is doing. Because what we want to do is bless what God is doing, bless what we can see. I think a lot of revelation happens by what we see. And learning to see the signs of faith, learning to see what God is doing is really important. But, but you know, again, even last night, a lot of people are praying with their eyes closed. I made a really good Bulgarian friend. Where is he? There you go. What was your name again? Mario, yeah. So Mario is praying every prayer he knows for this guy, and I'm sure they're great prayers. The only problem is he can't see what's happening to the guy. And so I took him to one side and said, well, look, what, what does that look like to you? He says, it looks like worship. It looks like bowing down. And I said, well, why don't you just try saying that? And then we had another go with a woman, and he, I said to him, what does that look like? And he said, peace. And I, that's not what I would have described, actually, but that's what he saw. And I said, well, why don't you try saying that? So he says it. And immediately the girl starts to cry, and she is powerfully touched. And that's the rule, that when we bless what God is doing, as opposed to trying to think this is our horrible burden to pray for people, 
Oh, the weight of responsibility on me to evangelize, to teach, <coughs> to pray. It, you know, it's not your job, right? All you want to do is follow what God is doing. It's so much easier that way. It does mean it's a bit messy and you don't, you know, necessarily do what you plan to do, but it's also a lot more fun. I don't know about you, but I like fun, especially in church. It can be quite serious, can't it? So Jesus knew in general terms what his mission was, but he relied on his father for specific details, some of which I believe came as a surprise. I don't think Jesus expected that Gentiles were going to come in until he starts seeing the faith of Gentiles. And then he realizes, oh, they're coming in too, because I've been sent to preach through the towns of Israel. And then he sees Gentiles responding by faith, and you can see him going, flip me. Look, they're more open than the people of God. Right? Ultimately, is obedient even unto death. So the obedience of the son. Then Jesus experiences the love of his father. His ministry is characterized by deep compassion. He's moved with pity, Mark 1, 41. The word is moved with anger in the bowels. Ever experienced that? Move with anger in the bowels. One of the stories in my book is about the healing of somebody who has a, um, an unreversible heart condition. She's about 21, and she's at the top of the heart transplant list. And what I find interesting is that the person who prayed for her said she became absolutely furious about this. They prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and it got worse and worse and worse and worse. And then she found herself feeling absolutely furious, and then the woman was completely healed. That's compassion. Um, he has compassion on the crowd, Mark 6, 28. He heals the paralytic out of compassion, Mark 2, verse 1. And he loves in this way because he himself is loved. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, Matthew 3, 17, we saw, and at the um, transfiguration. Jesus is dangerous to the kingdom of darkness because he unequivocally knows he's loved by his father and he's delighted in. And he, he delights in love and he makes love the guiding principle and force behind everything he does. And evil has no answer to perfect love. Finally, he's filled with the power of the Spirit, without limit, in fact, in response to the long-cherished prophetic hope that one day God will put his Spirit upon a person who would remain with him forever. Because in the Old Testament, the Spirit came on particular people at particular times for particular purposes, but did not remain on anyone. And when they cocked it up, he's off. Although miracles were and are done in the name of Jesus, the power comes from the Father. So there is power for Jesus to fulfill his Father's agenda, and that is what he seeks to follow. So... What about us? Well, undeniably, Jesus taught his disciples to do what he did, and they did it. They didn't do anything until the Spirit came upon them, but thereafter they ministered to people just as Jesus did. So I'm just going to summarize for you the Gospel of Matthew. Are you ready? First of all, Jesus is the Son of God. Matthew just says it like it is. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Messiah. Verse 1. Various witnesses confirm it, like the devil, indirectly, God at the baptism. Here's a summary of Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, which proves that he is who Matthew says he is. And here are some absolutely extraordinary honking miracles, which prove that he is who he says he is. And then the disciples are commissioned and sent out. And then, as soon as they've got it, you were the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, as soon as Peter's got a flash of it, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem to die and finish his mission. And at the end, we have the Great Commission. You know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go into all the earth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. 
Matthew 28, verse 18 onwards, which presumably includes all that Jesus taught his disciples to do, including Matthew 10, which is called the Mission Discourse, which has been preserved by Matthew. It's very long to tell you how to do a mission, guys. When you go out, this is how we did it, just so we can include it. So presumably, when Jesus commits his ministry to the disciples so that they can teach further disciples. It includes the healing and the cast out, casting out demons bit, which clearly the disciples thought it did themselves. So is there any basis for the view that while we generally follow Jesus, for example, in forgiving people or loving people, we don't need to do the supernatural stuff anymore? Is the existence of the New Testament enough with the record of what Jesus did and what the apostles did in times past? Obviously, some churches have taught this, but this is a teaching with no biblical authority whatsoever. Using this reason, it would be as logical for me to argue that Christians no longer need to forgive people today. Imagine that. Imagine if I just stood up and said, well, do you know what? Jesus was Jesus, and so he had the power to forgive people. And he did it amazingly. But look at you guys. You don't know how to do that. I certainly don't know how to do that. So let's just give up on it, shall we? And just consign it to Jesus and the apostles. I mean, you'd kick me out, wouldn't you, if I tried saying that? People are saying the same thing about openness to the power of God, but without the power of God, we stand no chance of even being a church. So what I'm challenging us to do is to commit to or recommit to, because I'm sure a number of you have heard this many times, commit to or recommit to a biblical vision of what it means to be a Christian. Keep preaching the gospel, whether you are an evangelist or not. Keep healing the sick in all forms. Keep confronting evil and casting out demons if it really comes at you at the center. Okay, so why don't we? Why do we not do this? Well, because some of us have been erroneously taught, and that's hard to shake. As that world-class theologian Rod Stewart once observed, the first cut is the deepest. Whatever your first spiritual cut, it's formative of what you think about Christianity, and it's quite hard to shake. It's not impossible, but the first cut is really powerful. And also, all aspects of Jesus' commission are actually offensive to the culture of which we are a part. So, for, exa for example, multi-faith dialogue is acceptable, but evangelism is not, and it is less acceptable now than it was when I started 25, 30 years ago. Healing through the laying on of hands is regarded as a throwback to primitive superstition. Now we have hospitals at the moment. Belief in supernatural evil is defective because it represents a pre-scientific worldview. And we have to battle against this all the time. Every film you watch, every drama you watch, everything you watch on Netflix or whatever, it's basically enforcing these messages where it touches on the supernatural or it's saying, no, no, there's an evil supernatural. But what it's not doing is affirming your understanding of the supernatural. And a more aggressive secularist agenda has made this worse. And the enemy is also within. We are overly concerned, are we not, about what people will think of us. If I had money for every person that would actually like to pray for people, for example, just in church, but they would be worried about getting it wrong, about saying the wrong thing, about unintentionally hurting somebody, I would be very wealthy. And so what that person says is, I'm consumed with myself. Here I am, I am a Christian. I've sung 25 minutes of songs about lions and how wild they are and how I'm in a lion hanging onto his mane somehow. But God forbid that I actually do anything with it. 
you know, because, you know, I'll surely die. We are affected by rational skepticism, and quite frankly, we aren't sure that we believe in the supernatural. We're very concerned about not losing control or getting carried away because, after all, we are English. And everything within us has told us to pack it all down inside and under no circumstances let it be seen by anybody else. And even if we are deeply moved, especially if we are male, we are damned if we're going to show that because everything in our culture and society, and particularly in our school, um, has taught us to not do that. And if somebody does, they're a bit effeminate. Right? I have never met anyone that's been powerfully used by God who has not logged a lot of floor time. I've not met anyone, male or female, who has not seriously wet the carpet on several occasions through their tears when they've been prayed for. Because if it's not about us being in control, it will be about God. If it's not about God, it will be us. And I think breaking down that, that kind of facade of being capable, of being able, of what it, what it means to be male or female, or what it means, according to my family, to be an upright person, a correct person, all needs to die. We prefer our truths to be demonstrated in the test tube, but unfortunately for us, Christianity is not rational. It's not irrational, but it's super rational or supernatural. The trouble is, everything you believe is supernatural. Should we just do a little check? Do you believe in the virgin birth? Can you explain it? No, you can't. Um, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God but somehow became flesh? I'd like to take me through the um, science of that? No, you can't. Believe Lazarus was raised from the dead yet? Would you just like to talk about that for a bit? How dead became life? No. Resurrection, believe in that, do you? Mm. How did that happen? Good. So basically, unfortunately, the supernatural is us from start to finish. This is just a little bit more, right? But you can see the problem, because we can say that we believe in things where all we're being asked to do is put our trust in things we read about that other people did. The problem comes when we're being asked to write the stories, when we're being asked to be involved. That's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? And yet the, the problem with somebody like me, or many, many other people like me, is that because God has used one idiot to do this kind of thing, there's a strong possibility that he could also use you. Do you know what I mean? Because I usually, I said this yesterday, but if I speak to a group of people that I've never met before, and I'm speaking about this kind of thing, I usually do 20 minutes on things that are wrong with me. So that people will have no illusion about who they're listening to and how contradictory it is that God would ever use somebody like me. I'm not proud of the things that are wrong. I'm just saying, my experience is, there are things that are wrong in all Christians. I mean, obviously, you look very Christian. But underneath that, there will be some awful things. I mean, I've got to know some great leaders over the time, and they are all, in various areas, awful. <laughs> Without exception. And I am awful. I'm more awful. The thing about me is, at least it's obvious. So Jesus marries together perf <coughs> perfectly obedience in lifestyle and obedience in following the direction of the Father in his ministry. <clears throat> he perfectly marries together the receiving and giving of his Father's love. He marries together the receiving and giving out of spiritual power. We do not. 
Instead, we have fallen and we continue to do what we shouldn't do. We all have imperfect models of fatherly love and to one extent or another, we project them onto God and other people. We don't take time to receive power or revelation from the Father. We don't have a lifestyle that even suggests this is important. These are some of the reasons we don't see the ministry of Jesus amongst us or much of it. But everybody who does pay attention to the foundations will see a measure of Jesus' ministry without ever having to be or without ever being perfect. I can honestly confirm that this is true. Over many years of active ministry, I have seen many, many people go from not believing in Jesus at all to being used in every area of ministry that I've mentioned. But we still need to accept that there will be a gap between our aspirations and our capacity. So, you know, I'm at the stage now, there's a guy in my church who, bless him, he keeps trying. He used to play tennis for Ecuador. A long, long time ago, I used to play tennis, like quite serious tennis. So he knows that. So he's thinking, do you know what? I think God wants me to help him get fit. And that is a good idea. So we, we arrange it, you know, and basically, as soon as I reach any level of fitness, something else breaks down in my body because I'm just that age. Last time it was my feet. So basically, I, I actually ran around a bit. I mean, it's all comparative. I ran around a bit on a court and basically then hobbled around for two weeks of new wine. I could hardly walk. I, d I don't know why, but you know, it, it just, if, it, if it's part of my body, it's likely to fall to pieces, I've discovered, the older it gets. So basically, imagine that I saw the Olympics, and I saw the parallel bars, and I thought to myself, do you know what, at 54, I cannot see the problem with actually taking this up. I think I'm going to do that. And I tell people, just like I told people I was doing Dry January, which I have nearly done, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Years of training go into what happens on the parallel bars. It's unseen, it's real, it's vital. So it is with ministry in the power of the Spirit. Anyone you know who God uses in any way to do any of this stuff has these foundations in place to one extent or another. It's about us, all we are, all the time. But the thing is, we can always start or start again, just as we are because of God's grace. He knows that we are perpetually sheep wandering away. It's not a compliment to be called a sheep. I mean, sheep are stupid, right? If they fight, they go to the same bit of a field. Even if there's a blizzard, they still go to the same bit because sheep are stupid. If they fall over, they cannot get up because sheep are stupid. All we, like sheep, Jesus said, have gone astray. We do it all the time. We're forever wandering out of the sheep pen. Oh, look, somebody's left the gate open. I think I'm just going to try it out here. I know I could be eaten by a wolf. I probably will be, but who knows? It might be fun. See ya. I'm just going to head. We do it all the time with an inane, sheep-like lack of understanding. All we go astray, but the Lord still loves us, and he still wants to restore us, and he will still use us as long as we show up. So my encouragement is to process the areas of discrepancy. Is it obedience? Now, it could be that you're doing naughty things behind the scenes. There are always people who do that. But I'm really talking about when the Spirit asked you to do something and you didn't do it. That's disobedience. 
Now, the thing is, could you really know? Not really know. That's the thing. That was so well put. Can you really know? Not really know. So, basically, um, accidental. This is probably the double hit of antihistamine kicking in as I start speaking to myself. So, basically, <laughs> the, the thing is, the thing is, you can never know it's God. You can believe quite strongly that this feels like other experiences, so it, it may well be, but even then you do not know. Some of the most powerful things I've seen, I have thought to myself, I, I just don't think I'm going to say that. I can't say that. I just don't know. I'm, oh. And then I say it, and it's got massive implications. So I've learned to just say it anyway. I don't care. Once you've given a word of knowledge, like there's somebody here with genital problems going on a cycling holiday to France, and somebody's actually there with that condition, in front of your theology tutor who does not believe in these things, right, you lose all sense of shame. <laughs> so I don't care. I'm just going to say it. The, but do you know what? The, the, what covers me, though, what covers us, is love. So as long as it's done in a loving way, as long as it's done to build up and to be kind, as long as it's not forced on people. No, God is telling you that. As long as we're not, it's not our ego. We're just trying to give the message. You know, a postman gives the message. How many postmen or postwomen do you know that stand there and wait for you to open the letter? Hello. Letter. Can I open it? Can't go till you've opened it. It's not what they do, is it? They just give the letter and they're off to give another letter to someone else. <clears throat> I'd think about it like that. You just give the information, but you do it in a nice, kind, loving way. And then if it's wrong, it's not going to do too much harm. And I believe God may be saying, is it possible that God is something like that? So we're not forcing people. There's no power added to it by saying it in a forceful way. Christians are so odd with that. Just going to click a bit, you know, cut a few things off. <laughs> Honestly. I mean, that might, might make you feel okay, but I mean, seriously, think about what it looks like. Do you know, I went to church the other day, and there's this person doing this with their arms. Didn't know what it was, and then they did some clicking, did they? Hmm. It's the ability of Jesus to do extraordinary things and yet be so normal they could have dinner with a house full of sinners. That's the aim to be able to be completely at home somehow in the depths of the world, but also completely at home in the church. Somehow to, to pull that off, how do you do that? That's what we're growing into, I believe. Good, shall we stand? Obedience, love of the Father, power of the Spirit, where are the discrepancies in your life? Why don't you close your eyes and ask the Spirit to speak? You may think or you may know that you already know some of the answers, but let the Spirit highlight things. Let us follow the Spirit. And then if you feel like, do you know what, I would like to come and be different in that area, then people can pray for you. You don't have to say anything. Is that okay? Don't have to say anything. Don't have to say embarrassing things. But if you know, actually, I need to say sorry for something, or I need God once again to show me that he is a father to me because I had, abusive, I had an abusive father, I had a distant father, I had an absent father. Can I just say about that? Um, Jesus says we need to worship the father in spirit and truth. 
Now, that's very important because Jesus, uh, because the Father transcends any paradigm of Father that we have. He is not a good, good Father. He's much, much better than anything that that analogy could suggest to our minds. That's the truth. And when it comes to the power of the Spirit, if you've been taught to be a bit cautious, ask God to remove that and to go for it. I'm not saying, obviously, I did say it, but I'm exaggerating. It's not like you need to be a blubbering wreck to be open to the Spirit. But basically, you do need to be somebody that wants the power of God to come upon you. So let's wait upon the Lord. Opening your hands is a symbolic way of saying, I am open. Closing your eyes means I'm not distracted. I'm just going to be here for a few minutes, and I'm handing it over to you and God. Just to have the courage to let him speak to you. So over to you, if you know that you, it would be helpful just to come and let somebody pray over you, could you come forward? If you're on the ministry team, you need to come forward as well, if that's okay. Everybody that can pray for people, please do. And uh, I've spoken for too long, for which I apologize. I'll make up for it in the next session by speaking for a shorter time. So basically, the next session is going to start at 12.15, not at 12. Um, so come forward if you'd like prayer. You'll be able to get coffee, and then, uh, which is essential. And then uh, we'll move on in the program for the rest of the time. Over to you. Don't pray for people yet. Just let them come. I feel that, sadly, tragically, there are a number of people who are still trying to process abusive fathers, absent fathers, people who've had a terrible time and you've done so well um, to hold your marriages together, to be a father to your children, to try to process this pain. And it is good just to get another wave of prayer for this. Such a deep wound. Remember that you are dearly loved, inexpressibly loved. God will never leave you or forsake you. He will never be absent to you. He will always be interested in you. He will always look upon you with joy. Okay. So listen, just come with words. Don't pray for them yet if that's okay. Don't pray for them yet. Just come with words if you're being prayed for. Say whatever it is. This is your part, just to say the words to God. Say the things that are most unsayable. It's a safe place. Nobody's listening apart from the Lord. It's all right to cry. Got to be able to cry here. Ideally, you empty yourself and the Spirit fills you. Give memories to God, give failures to God, give fears to God.
Okay, well done. You can continue with that sometime if you need to, but now be still and know that God is God. You've done your bit. Let people minister to you. Receive the words of affirmation. Receive what God says about you, affirmed over you. So as you pray for people, could you please bless what you see God doing, but in particular bless these people. Speak well over them. Say the words of kindness that they need. Let's pray for people. If you want to join them, you can. You can just come and join everybody else. As you can see, lots of people here. You're not going to be exposed. And we will carry on praying for people. Otherwise, we're having a break. And um, we'll, we'll start again about 12.15. And I'll be sure to next time. I apologize. <laughs>